The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, before we begin, I wanted to give you all an additional warning for today's episode. Today we're talking about a case of domestic terrorism. It's not an easy topic to cover by any means. But I think it is a necessary one, due to the advent of online radicalization. I think it's become increasingly obvious to us all, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, that online radicalization exists everywhere, on every social media platform. And in the last two decades, we've seen it result in domestic terrorism and the incitement of violence like what was seen on January 6th of 2021 at the United States Capitol building. This episode is a bit of a different one. It's not a murder, serial killer, or kidnapping, but it's an emerging type of crime that has become especially relevant in contemporary society. Before I get started, I just wanted to let you all know that I do not intend on saying the terrorist's name. In March of 2021, Judge Anne Malloy, when sentencing this terrorist after what he had done, said that working out his exact motive for carrying out this domestic terrorist attack was close to impossible. But the judge was inclined to accept that his main motivation was notoriety amongst his community. For that reason, I'm going to tell you his story, I'm going to tell you what happened, but I'm not going to give him the credit that he wants. So while you're listening today, please use your listener's discretion and know that I will be referring to this domestic terrorist as A.M. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. According to Stratford Global Intelligence analysts, vehicular terrorism is a relatively new form of terrorist attack and it rose to popularity in the 2010s. According to an analysis of vehicle-based terrorist events by Ryan Scott Hauser from the Schar School of Policy and Government, George Mason University, from 1970 till about 2012-2013, vehicular-based terrorist attacks were pretty infrequent and that level was pretty stable. Between that time period, the most vehicle-based terrorist attacks the world had seen in a single year was seven, and that only happened twice. That trend remained steady up until about 2014, when the incidences of vehicle-based terrorist attacks rose to 27, spiking to 45 in 2015, and to this day, the world is still dealing with the advent of this new kind of terrorism. Stratford Global Intelligence analysts think they might know why this is the case. According to them, the rise in vehicle-based terrorist attacks comes from a mixture of a few different working components. Firstly, unlike many firearms, vehicles don't actually require a lot of skills to operate, especially in a situation where someone is intentionally trying to cause mass casualties it's much easier to operate a vehicle than it is an assault rifle or any other sort of weapon intended to do so. Secondly, 
cars and trucks are much easier to get a hold of than illicit firearms in most countries. If someone doesn't have the money to buy their own vehicle, they can always rent a car, which is exactly what happened in the case that we're going to discuss today. Adding to that component, having a vehicle, renting a vehicle, is much less suspicious than going out and buying a firearm for the first time. Having a car in your possession, even if it's intended for terrorism, is much less suspicious than having a weapon. Thirdly, motor vehicles have the capacity to cause significant tragedies. Like we'll see in today's episode, as is the case with many vehicle-based terrorist attacks, you don't actually have to drive very far to cause a lot of casualties. Mass destruction with little effort, a potential to completely avoid suspicion, and it's not very difficult to do. On top of all of that, The FBI currently states that the two biggest threats of domestic terrorism in the United States, which I think we can extrapolate globally, are lone offenders and the internet and social media, which in my opinion, are definitely acting synergistically when it comes to domestic terrorists. A quote from the FBI's website on terrorists regarding lone offenders states, Terrorist threats have evolved from large group conspiracies towards lone offender attacks. These individuals often radicalize online and mobilize to violence quickly. Without a clear group affiliation or guidance, lone offenders are challenging to identify, investigate, and disrupt. Another quote under the subheading, the internet and social media, as one factor contributing to high terrorism risk, the FBI states, International and domestic violent extremists have developed an extensive presence on the internet through messaging platforms and online images, videos, and publications. This messaging facilitates the group's ability to radicalize and recruit individuals who are receptive to extremist messaging. Social media has also allowed both international and domestic terrorists to gain unprecedented virtual access to people living in the United States in an effort to enable homeland attacks. What we're going to talk about today is more an example of the former rather than the latter. AM was a lone offender who was radicalized online through violent, misogynistic rhetoric. By killing 11 people, 9 of them being women, and injuring 15 more on April 23rd of 2018 in the city of Toronto, Canada, he thought he was doing his community a favor. On that day, at approximately 12.30 in the afternoon, AM arrived at a rider truck rental in the suburban area of Toronto called Vaughan, approximately a 31-minute drive from the city's downtown core. At that time, he picked up the keys to a white Chevrolet cargo van before driving eastbound down Highway 7 and turning south, aiming for Toronto. CCTV footage from a local business at the intersection of Young Street and Finch Avenue shows A.M. approaching this intersection in his rented white Chevrolet van at 1.24 p.m. This intersection in particular is known to be quite a busy one. Young and Finch is filled to the brim with stores and local residents just trying to go about their day. And on April 23rd, 2018, 
the residents doing exactly that could have never anticipated that the man who was about to run a red light at Young and Finch was aiming his van directly at them. After speeding through the intersection, A.M. managed to get his van angled up onto the sidewalk, where he drove for approximately 1.4 kilometers, just under a mile, totaling about 16 blocks. During the attack, A.M. swerved up and down, off of and back onto sidewalks, hoping to miss the traffic that was on the streets and aim solely for the pedestrians instead. The first of what I can only suspect was several 911 calls came in only a minute after AM ran that first red light, and only minutes later, police were already on their way. At 1.31pm, AM came to a stop on Points Avenue, a small side street, and he did this because he had hit someone who was holding a drink that spilled onto his windshield, so he wanted to clear it off quickly and get back to what he was doing. However, it was an incredibly brave traffic control officer, Constable Ken Lamb, who met face-to-face with A.M. instead. He was able to aim his cruiser at an angle where A.M. could no longer escape. And when confronting A.M., Constable Ken Lamb was able to figure out quite easily exactly what his endgame was. When Constable Lamb exited his cruiser and approached A.M. in his van, A.M. then reportedly withdrew what looked like a weapon before pointing it at Constable Lamb and uttering threats. However, Constable Lamb recognized very quickly that what A.M. was holding was not, in fact, a weapon of any kind. He wasn't entirely sure what it was, but after he had warned A.M. that he would be shot if he did not put down whatever he was holding, A.M. began to encourage the officer to shoot him, saying, "...in the head." and it became immediately clear that A.M. was trying to solicit suicide by cop. However, once this object was again recognized not to be a lethal weapon, Constable Ken Lamb put his own weapon away and instead withdrew a baton as to not use lethal force before making an arrest of A.M. at 1.32pm on April 23rd. Not even 10 minutes had passed, and over 20 people were laying on the streets of Toronto as victims of domestic terrorism. The attack perpetuated by AM would soon come to be known as the deadliest vehicle attack in Canadian history. The Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre was activated as the go-to emergency hub for all victims affected by this act of terror. It was about 9.5 kilometres, or just under 6 miles, away from the accident site. One by one, victims from the incident were transported to hospital so that first responders could attempt to save their lives. If you remember, this very same hospital, the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre, is where Han Pan, the father of Jennifer Pan, was recovering after she had attempted to solicit his murder for hire. But the aftermath of this incident left many more people admitted to the hospital. This included 65-year-old Amarish Tesfamiriam. She was struck by AM's van and ended up suffering quote-unquote catastrophic injuries to her spine. She was admitted to hospital the day that she was attacked, but unfortunately, she would never leave. 
After the incident, she was paralyzed from the neck down and doomed to a ventilator. She would later die in October of that same year, 2018, many months after AM committed domestic terrorism, and she would become the 11th person who died at the hands of AM's rental van, with nine people dying on scene, an additional person dying in hospital later, and the overwhelming majority of them all being women. Other victims include 94-year-old Betty Forsyth, who was born in 1923. She was known as a good friend to all who knew her, and she was a big fan of Coronation Street, just like my own grandmother. Jihan Kim, who was 22 years old, younger than I am today, who came all the way here from Korea to study at Seneca College. Soe Chung, who was also 22 years old and a student at the University of Toronto. There was also Geraldine Brady, also known as Jerry. Jerry was 83 years old, and she had lived in that same local area where the act of terror took place for over 60 years with her husband. Chelmin Kang, also known as Eddie, he was 45 years old and also an immigrant from Korea. He was a line cook at the Coco Cabana Steakhouse in Toronto, and he left behind his wife of over 20 years. 30-year-old Anne-Marie D'Amico, who was known as a thrill seeker to her friends and family, the same friends and family who would launch a foundation in her name to help free women and children who live amongst violence. 85-year-old Munir Nahar, who was a global citizen, he spent most of his life traveling far and wide, growing up in Jordan, going to school in Jerusalem, then heading to the University of Baghdad, and then to the United States. He would end up back in Jordan, and then eventually to Canada, where A.M. decided to selfishly take his life. 80-year-old Dorothy Sewell, whose friends and family say that she had a bucket list, with many items still left unchecked. 33-year-old Andrea Braddon, who is a new divorcee and was so excited to begin her journey as a single lady. She was just beginning to re-emerge into the world as her brand new self. 45-year-old Renuka Amarasingha, who came to Canada from Sri Lanka in 2010. Renuka was known as one of the bravest people that many had ever met suffering with domestic violence at the hands of her husband for many years before speaking up, getting him arrested, and then emerging into the world again as a free woman. She raised her son by herself and loved him with every ounce of heart that she had. Many people suspect that A.M.'s motive for carrying out this terrorist attack was misogynistic terrorism. He is a self-proclaimed incel, or involuntary celibate. According to Wikipedia, an incel, or involuntary celibate, is a member of an online subculture of people who define themselves as quote-unquote unable to get a romantic or sexual partner despite desiring one. Incels are horrifically misogynistic, entitled, often racist, inherently violent in their actions or at the very least desires, and point the fault of their own personal shortcomings at pretty women and romantically successful men. In online incel forums, women who reject incels are known as Stacys, and men who are more handsome, more apt to gain romantic attention, are called Chads. 
The inherent violent misogyny that spews from incel forums often overlaps with alt-right and white supremacist ideologies. The synergistic effects of these multiple hateful rhetorics has brought to light a new term called ideological terrorism. After the Toronto van attack in 2018, North American government officials finally started taking these incel forums seriously, recognizing their ability to incite extremist violence. I don't really want to give these people any more attention, but it's necessary to mention in this case because A.M. was constantly posting his incel rhetoric on social media. Shortly before the Toronto van attack in 2018, one of A.M.'s last social media posts states this. Again, I won't be saying his name. Private Recruit M, Infantry 0010, wishing to speak to Sergeant 4chan, please. C-23249161. The incel rebellion has already begun. We will overthrow all the Chads and Stacys. All hail the Supreme Gentleman, Elliot Roger. Elliot Roger is someone who's often put on a pedestal in these incel forums because he was one of the first people to incite violence on the basis of misogynistic terrorism. In 2014, in Isla Vista, California, 22-year-old Elliot Roger killed six people. He stabbed three men to death in his apartment before driving to a sorority house, attempting to break inside, failing, and then shooting three random women as they passed by. After having a back-and-forth shootout with police who would obviously come to arrest him, he attempted to get away in his vehicle, which he was later found deceased inside from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. What makes his story so inspiring to incels on the internet is a video that Elliot Roger uploaded to YouTube before he went out to commit this act of terrorism. In this video, he outlined his attack and his motives for doing so, saying that he wanted to punish all women for rejecting him, as well as any sexually active men because he envied them. He would also go on to email a copy of his very lengthy, apparently, manifesto to some of his friends, as well as his therapist and some family members, and through all of this willingly turned over documentation that he decided to upload on the internet, people were able to get a well-rounded idea of what Elliot Roger called his retribution. Well before the International Center for Counterterrorism retroactively classified these killings as misogynistic extremism, the incel forums on the internet were already taking inspiration from the actions of Elliot Rogers, and AM was no exception. The social media posts made by AM and his continuous references to Elliot Roger would come into play when he was brought into court to face justice for what he had done because he thought he was smart enough to be able to get away with pleading not criminally responsible. In interrogation footage with Toronto Police, A.M. tells investigators how the main targets of his attack were quote-unquote alpha males, as well as all the Stacys who refused to quote-unquote give their love and affection to the incels. He speaks about wanting to subjugate quote-unquote normies, normies being people who are just average, who have average social lives, sex lives, consume mainstream or quote-unquote fake stream media, and who really have nothing to do with the perceived power dynamic that incels think they have with alpha males and quote-unquote stacies. But what's interesting about AM is that he had no prior criminal history. 
Unless you were following him on social media, you would not have even known that he felt this way about people in society, about women. And unless you, for whatever reason, were able to tap into his mind or get him to trust you as a fellow incel, then you would not have known that he was being radicalized by these ideologies and every day leaning more towards violence. But his family and friends in real life were none the wiser. AM's father immigrated to Canada from Armenia, and he was a software engineer. Similarly, his mother, also an immigrant from Iran, worked in IT. Their combined income allowed them to raise AM in the wealthy, affluent neighborhood of Richmond Hill near Toronto. And I'm not saying that parental wealth or generational wealth is the key to all happiness, but for all intents and purposes, AM had essentially everything handed to him. He himself was described as having a good life, attending college, and also aspiring to work in software development. The only indication that he might have been vulnerable to online misogynistic radicalization was the fact that he was known as socially awkward, yet was known to score remarkably on IQ tests. From my research, it seems like AM was a bit of a social outcast, and he would later obtain an autism diagnosis. He was able to find his community amongst other like-minded people who felt rejected by society. And every single hateful thing he said and did, every violent thing he would end up doing, was all intentional. He felt entitled to a mass apology from all women who would ever reject him and all men who would ever be more romantically successful than him. But unfortunately for A.M., when he tried to plead not criminally responsible, he would end up inevitably facing the repercussions of his actions. Because what happens when you are radicalized via online communities is that you have a digital footprint to worry about. In March of 2020, A.M. was brought to face justice before Anne Malloy of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. Prosecutors were looking to charge him with 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. One issue at the trial that became obvious right away, according to Crown Attorney Joseph Callahan, was the issue of criminal responsibility. He had noted that many psychiatric and psychological expert witnesses were going to be called to present evidence and testimonies. A.M. was not denying that he did intend to kill the people that he did, if not many more. In fact, some reports say that he admitted his intention was to kill at least 100 women. He also admitted to trying to engage in suicide by cop by flashing that object that was supposed to resemble a weapon at Constable Ken Lamb when he was apprehended. It would later come out that this object was just his wallet. But what he was denying was his ability to emotionally process the repercussions of his actions. He was denying his ability to understand what he had done, and he would argue that this rendered him not criminally responsible. The court would go on to watch about four and a half hours of AM's interrogation footage, where he does not hesitate to elaborate on the fact that he was intentionally taking revenge on people he felt had wronged him. In this same footage that I described earlier, he went into full detail about the intricacies and slang in the incel community. He made it clear who his intended targets were, and he was more than happy to elaborate on his motive. However, AM's defense attorney, Boris Batensky, argued that AM qualified to make a plea of not criminally responsible 
because he only understood the repercussions and moral wrongfulness of his actions on a strictly intellectual level. The basis for this was that A.M. had previously been diagnosed with autism. I want to make it abundantly clear that autism does not equate to antisocial personality disorder and the characteristics of that disorder, which render the people who suffer from it totally incapable of processing other people's real human emotions. People with autism spectrum disorder vary greatly in their abilities to communicate and interact with people socially. A.M. being on the autism spectrum might have contributed to his social awkwardness when trying to interact with females. This might have contributed to his frustration given that all of his sexual advances to females were evidently unsuccessful. But what it wouldn't do is render him totally incapable of understanding the repercussions of his actions. And Justice Anne Malloy agreed, totally rejecting the fact that A.M. was not aware of his actions. Consequently, A.M. was found guilty on all counts in March 2021, a year after the trial started. In a 69-page document explaining her decision, Justice Malloy again rejected the notion that being on the autism spectrum contributed to A.M.'s lack of ability to understand the repercussions of his actions. And in fact, Justice Malloy said that she was inclined to believe that A.M. committed the horrible act of domestic terrorism he did simply for notoriety in the incel community. And unfortunately, he would get exactly that. People in incel community forums started to call A.M. quote-unquote, our next new saint. Another quote from one of these forums says, Spread that name, speak of his sacrifice for our cause, worship him for he gave his life for our future. In fact, other misogynistic terrorist attacks were inspired by A.M. and what he had done. Just under two years after A.M. drove his rented white van down a sidewalk in northern Toronto killing 11 people, in February of 2020, a 17-year-old kid in the same area of Toronto brought a machete that he bought from Amazon to an erotic spa parlor just minutes away from his home and attacked the receptionist who worked there, Ashley Arzaga. On the sword he used to attack Ashley were the words, Thought Slayer, with Thought standing for that hoe over there. He would later admit to Toronto Police that he was inspired by A.M. On June 13th of this year, 2022, family members of the victims of A.M.'s terrorist attack gathered in a courtroom to deliver their victim impact statements after a lengthy court process that began all the way back in 2018. They were in court on this day to begin A.M.'s sentencing, a hearing that had been delayed more than once. The mother of Anne-Marie D'Amico, Carmela D'Amico, reportedly cried for almost a full minute on the stand before being able to compose herself and deliver her victim impact statement. A quote from her that I found on CTV News Toronto's website says, You took my beautiful baby girl away from me. She was at the prime of her life, completely healthy and vibrant. Hanin Nahar, daughter of Munir Nahar, a victim in the Toronto van attack, 
said that she was always worried something would happen to their family while they were back in Jordan before they emigrated to Canada. In her victim impact statement, she says, quote, Little did I know that this fear would materialize in Toronto, thousands of miles away from home in such a horrific and devastating way. Through tears, she says, Can anyone imagine the impact of such a disaster on a child? As Justice Anne Malloy delivered her sentence, she said, choking up through tears, every single one of these lives were precious. She sentenced A.M. to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Additionally, for every count of attempted murder, A.M. was to serve 20 years in prison concurrently. According to an article titled, Societies Should Not Ignore Their Incel Problem by Candace R. Blake from the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne and Robert C. Brooks from the Evolution and Ecology Research Center and School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences in Sydney, involuntarily celibate men commonly advocate for societal disruption, including violence towards women. Their anger can make them susceptible to radicalization, revolution, or reactionary hostility. The researchers also make it clear that this is a growing problem. They project that anywhere from 60,000 to 100,000 men actively participate in incel forums online. In a survey conducted amongst North American and European users of incel forums, Many of them indicated that they are 18 to 30 years old, with the majority identifying as white or Caucasian. Their research shows that up to 40% of incels have a depression diagnosis, almost 40% of them have an anxiety diagnosis. They are disproportionately compared to other non-incel white American men found to have autism spectrum disorder, and about 50% of incels struggle with suicidal ideation. Incels, violently misogynistic men, they all live amongst us in society. And again, as we've seen, radicalization online is becoming an ever-growing problem. Researchers have proposed many recommendations on how to mitigate incel violence, most of which includes understanding their language, understanding their interests, and breaking down their maladaptive views about women and other people, and also themselves, because truly, this all comes from a place of pathetic self-pity. I found an interesting report by the Moonshot team, titled Understanding and Preventing Incel Violence in Canada. It's an extremely helpful literature review about incel culture, and it's all summarized into one document. It includes key terms, definitions, and how these incel ideologies spiral into violent rhetoric. I'll link it for you on my website at crimopediapod.ca. In addition, there you can find all of the source material I used for this episode. Usually at the end of an episode, I, I like to highlight some sort of big idea or some lesson that can be learned from the tragedies that we discuss, but it's hard to pinpoint one with this discussion. I don't know how to fix this huge global problem of violent misogyny especially now that it's evolving into an online culture of young white males who feel entitled to access to women, especially when this entitlement and rhetoric spirals into violence that is manifesting on a global scale at an ever-increasing rate. I think these discussions go to show you that misogyny and violent extremism, as well as acts of terrorism, 
are not a religion issue. They're also not a culture issue or a faraway issue. I will provide some stats that I also used for this episode on the prevalence of even just van and vehicle domestic terrorist attacks in every country. Further, you'll be able to find some resources on the prevalence of misogynistic terrorism, and you'll see just how ubiquitous it is and how fast it is growing. More positively, after the Toronto van attack, several crowdfunding campaigns raised money for the victims' families. These campaigns coined the hashtag TorontoStrong, and by the end of 2018, over $4 million had been distributed to the families of all the victims who were affected by AM's act of terror. Although AM has already submitted appeals for his conviction, I highly doubt that any of them will ever be granted. He absolutely is a danger to the streets of Toronto, and I know myself and many others were very happy to know that he would be more than likely spending the rest of his life behind bars. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast, and thank you for listening and continuing to support my show despite taking a short hiatus at the end of November. As many of you all know by now, I am a full-time student and things just get busy sometimes. It doesn't feel like the right thing to do to half-ass or rush these types of stories. I knew I couldn't put out a meaningful episode in the amount of time that I had left, so I simply didn't. The driving force behind me starting and maintaining this show is telling stories in a meaningful way that does justice to the families of the victims, while also discussing the things that many of us are inherently interested in. Here on the Crimopedia podcast, it's all about respectful and ethical true crime consumption, so I really do appreciate all of your patience with that. If you have any case suggestions for me, you can find my case suggestion form on my website at crimopediapod.ca. You can also reach me directly on Instagram at crimopediapod, and I'm always willing to talk about any cases that I've already discussed or hear your suggestions or takes on other cases that are happening now. 2022 has been a very big year for crime and justice. I'm having a quite a hard time picking what cases I actually want to talk about because there's so many. But for you as the listener, that is good news because it means I'm not slowing down anytime soon. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to follow my podcast wherever you're listening now and feel free to give me five stars if you like the show. I'll see you back here on December 31st for our last episode of 2022. But until then, take care everyone and stay safe.